0: Hello. Good evening, everybody. Saturday era down. Evening. Welcome to this event at the Royal Air It's the debate that we've been organising with the Greener Bio Design Group. And I'm Ray Kingham, one of the members of the Greener Bio Design Group who's been organising it from our side, working with the Young Professionals, the Young People's Group as well, committee, to try and get a good attendance and a good discussion. The motion, which I hope you're aware of, is that aviation will not meet net zero by 2050. And the format will be that we have four speakers, two for the motion, two against, and they will alternate and give talks about 10 minutes each. And after that, we can have questions and discussion. And I've got a moderator, who's Mark, who's sat over here, who will uh, be running that part of the the session. Initially, we thought it would be a good suggestion to hold a show of hands to see who is for the motion and against the motion, just to see how, what the feeling is initially and how much changes at the end. <coughs> so, aviation will not meet net zero by 2050. Those in favour of the motion at the moment? Right, I've got a, a rough number, mm-hmm. <laughs> and those against the motion. Right, well, I make that about twenty-four, four, and seven against. That, that's an approximate number at the moment. If we now open the debate for the each of the speakers in turn, uh, it will be Mark Finley, who sat at the uh, on the. Your left over <laughs> there. Um, and I think then, is it Jonathan, Jonathan yeah. Council, yeah. who's neck, going to need off next? Matt Finch in the shirt there is uh, third to support the, the Finley. Yeah. And Andy, you're doing supporting uh, Jonathan. So I will just let it run, I think, for 10 minutes each and invite Matt to kick off, please. Thank you. <laughs> we'll yes.
1: yeah. cool. I'm just going to check if this works because we've had a bit of problems throughout the day. Is it okay if I use the microphone as well? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that work? Yeah, I just prefer to not stand behind the lectern. It's a bit more personal. So, yeah, I'm going to present... Are we starting the timer? Good to go, okay, cool. Um, so I'm going to present the motion that I think we will not, meet net zero. My name's Finlay Asher. Um, I'm part of this group called Safe Landing. Um, I'm a mechanical slash aerospace engineer by trade. Um, I've spent eight years at Rolls-Royce working on aircraft engine design, um, specifically on future programs and looking at future concepts. Um, and I'm now co-founder of this group called Safe Landing, which is a group um, for climate-concerned aviation workers. We think that rapid climate action is very consistent with secure, stable employment into the future. Um, and we are actively pushing our industry to do more um, within it. We're a group of pilots, engineers, cabin crew, airport workers, factory workers, air traffic controllers, etc. cetera. Um, lots of people in the UK, lots of people all, all around the world um, there. So check out our website and my email address is there as well. So, this is quite dramatic right i'm saying i think aviation is heading for a crash um and i really want to alarm people here i think something really serious is happening i think we've got a massive risk on our hands and i think we need to take it very very seriously and examine all options to prevent that because in the aviation industry safety should be our number one priority so what's happening well we're having massive increase in global emissions over the last 50 years. This is the aviation sector. This is all that matters is carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere each year, which has been going up and up. And in fact, prior to COVID, we're seeing a 5% growth per year of CO2 emissions, very much going in the wrong trajectory. What our group is saying is we need to set a new trajectory completely change course and set a new flight path towards a safer future where we can land and take off again and continue to fly into the future. So, if you think of our atmosphere like a bucket and we're filling it with greenhouse gases, we've got a certain carbon budget, um, and if we go above that budget, we fill the bucket with too much greenhouse gas, I was hoping to have an animation there. Okay, well, so we've been filling up the, the bucket for the past sort of 200 years since the industrial revolution. And on our current trajectory, with our current CO2 emissions, we've only got about 8% of that budget left or less than 10 years. So really the context here is that the next 10 years are vital. doesn't matter about 2040, 2050, if we don't take action this decade. okay. Um, Now, it's not about future impacts here. One third of Pakistan was underwater this year. We had major droughts in Africa and China uh, with massive economic impacts in the billions or trillions. Um, That is the cost of inaction this decade as well. This is an emergency. Okay, if if we as aviation workers, as a pilot in an aircraft, if you see a warning sign, you're trained to not ignore it. Even if you've got unconscious biases, it's uncomfortable to acknowledge the emergency and to take action. It's very important that you you look at the, uh, well, firstly, you don't try and dismiss it. You tackle it head on. You look at the various options. You go through it with a clear mind, presenting clear evidence, and also you give yourself a backup plan. An eight, a plan A, a plan B, a plan C that you can execute. You don't just put all your eggs in one basket. So sustainable aviation, at the moment, the industry presents a kind of playbook to justify future growth of air traffic. Um, and I'm gonna talk you through that right now because it's why I spend a lot of my time um, addressing and trying to talk people through. So the first thing is to play down the size of the problem. You've heard today a few times, if you were here, is only two or 3% of global CO2. That's tiny. Well, actually, the first thing is that the UK is 1% of global CO2 emissions, and that doesn't mean we, sh- we shouldn't take action in the UK. 2% um, is bigger than the UK, Brazil, Mexico. It's not that we don't need to do anything in these countries. It's a cumulative problem, and it's a sum of everything. The next problem is the projected growth of air traffic and emissions mean that we're likely to consume about a quarter of the budget um, by 2050. And this is ignoring non-CO2 emissions as well. And the industry, we've known about this since the 1990s, and we've continued to neglect it, play up the uncertainty, and not take action, which is leading to additional impacts. So the latest science says that non-CO2 is actually two-thirds of aviation's climate impact. So maybe we need to reduce any budget by, by, by two thirds. Maybe we've only got a few years, we don't have 10 years. Okay, and at the moment, non-CO2, we don't measure it. We don't account for it in any policy. We don't mitigate it. There's a couple of trials, but there's nothing that legislates airlines in any way to do anything about non-CO2 at the moment. And the industry is actively delaying that as well, which is dangerous. So there's, tend to be sort of five different types of greenwash that's put forward to kind of not look at the growth issue. The first is aircraft efficiency. That's what I was working on. We've already seen that um, the growth of air traffic massively outweighs the rate of efficiency improvements. And in fact, more efficient aircraft, it's cheaper to fly, more people fly. Electric flight and hydrogen as well. We've seen the timescales there, but also just the range and capacity of these aircraft mean that they're not gonna decarbonize a major Chunk of CO2 emissions anytime in the next couple of decades. It doesn't meet the this decade um, test. Alternative jet fuels, sustainable aviation fuels, the big issue is lack of resource, lack of global resource, and also competing demands for that resource, which means we can't keep on burning jet fuel in the quantities we're doing now. There needs to be a reduction, and that means we need air traffic degrowth. Finally, you've got carbon offsets, and I'd kind of put the negative emissions in this. This is about making it not our problem, but someone else's, pay for somebody else, somewhere else, sometime else, to sort this out in the future, which is very dangerous because it delays the, the issue. Um, there's big issues with verification, permanence of these things, and at the moment, these offsets are just far too cheap, and they don't have any material impact on actually reducing emissions. So you've seen this graph a couple of times today. Um, you've probably seen it lots of times in industry roadmaps. there's a bunch of aspects to this technology efficiency improvements, alternative fuels. this is the industry's most optimistic line of what it can do with alternative fuels technology and offsets um, but there's a big area under this graph and that the, the area under the curve is what's important and we will blow our budget for 1.5 degrees C within the next 10 years and will massively overrun our budget, giving a massive social and economic injustice to future generations, even if they can fix it with negative emissions. So this kind of underpins what I'm saying here. It it doesn't matter what happens in 2050. It matters whether we blow the budget or not, and we have about 10 years to do it, so hopefully that makes sense. Now, The industry wants to get back on this business as usual growth trajectory of air traffic. What I'm saying is that could lead to a massive industry crash. Once we understand we just don't have the resource and the resource is far too expensive compared to now if we're planning for untaxed, subsidized jet fuel. What we are saying is maybe we need to fly less in the short term in order to preserve the ability to fly more into the future um, and to continue to be able to enjoy the benefits that aviation has. What we don't want to do is build in over capacity in terms of our airports and airlines, make a massive investment, then become stranded, meaning we have a massive loss of investor money and major cuts to our workforce, which you've seen what happened during COVID, um, quite precarious, particularly in airports. And we've really got to be concerned about those workers and not have a repeat of that. Um, so why is the industry not doing anything about it? Well. I kind of present to you this analysis. If you're a political leader or a business leader, you tend to have a few years in office as a CEO or as a politician. Particularly if you're a CEO, you're thinking about quarterly, share, quarterly profits, share price, maximizing growth in the long term, minimizing cost, minimizing R&D, minimizing headcount in order to look good to investors. The problem is these people won't be here in 2030. They might be, but they're quite unlikely to be here. The climate crisis is going to get really bad in 10 to 15 years. Um, you know, I want to have a career in the industry for 20 to 40 years. It matters to me if there's a massive crash in the 2030s. Leaders, though, do not prioritize long-term stability in favor of short-term gain. And that's why we need to kind of recognize this time horizon here. Um, so... Basically, there, there's a, if, if we don't need technology, what do we need? Well, we do need technology, but we're lacking the policy to drive the technology and also to drive the behavior. The only thing we've got is the ICAO's Corsair Scheme and in International Aviation. This covers the majority of aviation emissions. Um, and the Corsair Scheme was kind of ratified last month. We think there's massive issues with this scheme and we need to overturn it and have something much better completely reform it. We think it basically gives zero accountability to airlines. There is no carbon budget, which is fundamental to climate science. There's zero limits on CO2 emissions. You just offset if you produce more. There's zero action on non-CO2, which has a massive impact. There's no tax on jet fuel. There's no consideration a frequent flyer levy or limits on air traffic growth. So there's zero chance of preventing an industry crash. Okay, this is very stark. This is very serious for our careers and our industry. We need to do something about it. So what is that? Well, our group, we've come up with this idea of um, aviation workers, climate assembly, where workers are given the time, the space, and the expert evidence to go through this and to design our own vision for the future of our industry that is compatible with climate science. Yeah, so basically, this is our website. This is the the page that describes um, the the Climate Assembly. We've got a two minute promotional video, Um, and that's me. Thank you for, and sorry for overrunning by a few seconds. Cheers. Right,
2: hello. Evening. I'm very impressed that there's so many people want to uh, listen about sustainability on a Friday night. So congratulations. Yes, I'm Jonathan Council. I'm group head of sustainability at the International Airline Group. And uh, I've been with them for 23 years, but the last 15 have been focused on sustainability, first with British Airways and then with IOG. And I have to say, it's uh, working in sustainability in an airline is not the fast track to the C-suite, yeah? Not not when I started anyway, but that, that could change. And uh, someone said, uh, it's like everybody in the world thinks airlines are trying to destroy the planet and everybody in the airlines think you're trying to destroy the business. Yeah, so you're in a real rock and hard place. But I have to say, I've never been more excited around we actually are starting to see some of the solutions that we've been working pretty hard on to actually reduce the emissions. That's what I want to uh, persuade you of today. We are seeing this starting to happen. So I'm representing Sustainable Aviation. It is the UK collaboration on uh, aviation sustainability. We have 43 members, every major business uh, in the UK. We're the first uh, group to focus on this globally. We set up in 2005 uh, uh, and I'll, I'll share with you some of the work that we've been undertaking. Um, The first thing, you know, aviation is absolutely critical to the economy. You know, in the UK, 1.3 million jobs, uh, 80 billion pounds of economic value. You know, and we're an island. Yeah, we trade with the rest of the world. The notion that we uh, forgo our connectivity is just, you know, just doesn't make sense at all. But of course, and we agree, climate change is absolutely critical and we are in a climate crisis and we absolutely have to address it. So the first thing, let's look at what's happened historically. The good news is that we have in the UK, we have decoupled growth from growth and emissions. So the, the line at the top there, that's the growth in passengers. Emissions have stabilised. So that's fine, that's a good start, but it's nowhere near good enough. We need to reduce those emissions and we need to get them down to net zero emissions. And, uh, and we're proud to say that uh, sustainable aviation was the first collaboration in the world to commit to net zero emissions back in February 2020. And not only have we made that commitment, uh, uh, we also have a plan to deliver it. So this is our carbon roadmap. Uh, And again, this is our fifth version of this roadmap. And, And these take about a year to produce, and they're a collaborative effort across all of the members. So basically we talk about the four pillars. So new aircraft engine technology, sustainable aviation fuels, and then investments in reduction in other sectors. Uh, we're just in the middle of uh, updating that, and the good news is that we believe, because of the momentum and progress, we can actually increase the amount of emissions that we reduce within our sector. And what I'm going to do now is just talk to you uh, about a bit of that. But um, and all I say is, look out for the latest roadmap. We're planning to launch that in April 2023. And of course, as uh, Finley mentioned, uh, uh, a, a KO. We got the agreement to net zero emissions by 2050. And it's worth reminding ourselves, we are the only industry that has a global commitment to net zero emissions. Now, uh, and I've been very closely involved with this. That's taken 10 years to get there. you know. So it's all 195 member states of the United Nations. So, and it's, it's worth repeating, the only sector. And why is that important? Because that will enable us to get the policy support to uh, uh, finance all the decarbonisation that we're happening. And so so it's something that we should all be proud of in our industry. But let me start talking about the solutions. So there's a lot of opportunity here around uh, electric, hydrogen fuel cells and sustainable aviation fuels. But this is the industry position in terms of that mix. So here we've got mission on the y axis. So basically if you think of it sector length commuter regional short haul medium haul long <laughs> haul and then we've got timeline. So this is an industry current view of the mix of solutions by mission. The important thing to uh, recognize is the numbers at the bottom here in terms of percent of CO2, medium-haul 43%, long-haul 30%, which is why there is so much focus on sustainable aviation fuels, because essentially we believe they are the only solution for medium-long-haul, which will be 70% of our emissions reductions. We believe hydrogen will play a key role, but essentially on short-haul flying. Now, um, the LTAG report, so this is the ICAO report. So anybody here is interested in decarbonisation of industry, you should get a copy of this report. It's free on the ICAO website. It's 2,000 pages, but there's a 19-page exact summary. It is the definitive piece of work in how we believe we can decarbonise. It's the result of two years of effort with 300 global experts And these are the three scenarios that they produced. So uh, low, medium and high. And now that we have the long term ambitious goal, we're now believing that this most ambitious scenario is the most likely. And you can see the green is sustainable aviation fuels. So generally, there is real consensus across the industry that sustainable aviation fuels will play a key part. And they're happening today. This is not about promise in the future. We've had now today actually almost half a million flights on SAF. We're producing something like 150,000 tons a year. 38 countries have policy. We have seven different types of SAF. We have another six on the way. They reduce on average about 70% of CO2. But as we improve the technology, we believe that can get to closer to 100%. And today we're actually looking at $20 billion of forward contracts on SAF. So it's happening today. And this is what's happened in the last two years in terms of the commitment to sustainable aviation fuels. So you see, you know, governments are committing, the US government have committed to 15% by 2030. And you can see around 70% of the industry now believe we can get to 10% by 2030. But uh, uh, even more impressively by 2050, we believe that's at least 60% nearer 80%. So a big consensus around the achievement. A lot of people say to me 10% by 2030 doesn't sound much. It's 10 times more than we're producing today. It's 30 million tonnes, 300 plants, uh, but it will uh, uh, involve quite a significant amount of investment. Next slide. <laughs> Here we go, sorry. Now, so what about in terms of capacity? So, this is the latest chart in terms of the plants that are being built in Europe. So we have 26 plants that are in planning and in construction, including three in the UK. So this is happening. These these facilities are actually being built. And in fact, at IAG, we have committed to a million tonnes by uh, 2030. We have secured, contractually secured, 250,000 tonnes of SAF, which is an $865 million commitment. So I know a lot of people say airlines aren't doing anything, We have committed $865 million of SAF. Uh, We're actually taking delivery today, 20,000 tonnes a year. So it's one of the plants in the UK, Philip 66, up in Humberside. So if you fly on a BA plane out of Heathrow, it will contain some sustainable aviation fuels. So it is today. We need to do it more and we need to do it quicker. We believe with the right policy support in the UK, we could get 14 plants in the next 10 years. And that will enable the UK to uh, get to 10%. And we've even got a, um, you know, a good sense of where those plants will be and the types of sap they'll provide. Uh, so we're uh, uh, members of the Jet Zero Council. One of the difficulties is how do you accelerate policy support? Jet Zero Council has been a great success. We now have six other countries replicating Jet Zero Council. They produced their Jet Zero strategy. And again, if you're interested, you should get a copy of this. So they've made a commitment to 10% SAF by 2030, fly five plants in construction by 2025. And on Monday, there'll be an announcement about where they're going to allocate £165 million of investment in those initial projects. So, so, so there is an absolute government commitment to make this happen. Let's talk about hydrogen. And it's fair to say Airbus are leading the charge here. Uh, so they've committed to the first aircraft um, uh, in service from 2035. And they may have heard they have committed to the A380 testbed, which will be flying by 2025. So they're making significant commitments into making hydrogen happen, so, uh, which is really exciting. So here's the types of technology. And these are the, the um, uh, uh, aircraft that will be flying from 2035. Here in the UK, we have Zero Avia. So this is the world's most advanced hydrogen fuel cell company. So they've already done test flights on a six-seater. This is the 19-seater. Again, we, uh, IEG, we've invested um, several million dollars into this company. We think it's really exciting. That test flight on this aircraft should happen in the next three to four weeks. So, again, watch for that. So, these things are happening today. They're not a long time in the future. And as Finley says, absolutely, there are non-CO2 effects. It's not just CO2. We do need to address the non-CO2. But there's a lot of opportunity here, and there's been significant increase in the research we think there are real opportunities in the near term to avoid the effects of non-CO2. So there's much better capability to understand the atmospheric conditions that create particularly contrails. So there's half a dozen airlines already running trials on how to avoid contrails. Uh, The other exciting opportunity is sustainable aviation fuels. We know because they're synthetic and they don't create the nuclei, They prevent the formation of the ice crystals, which are contrails. So if we can move to 100% SAF approval sooner, there's another option. So we've got two real opportunities to avoid the impacts of contrails. And so we're working hard as industries to address that impact as well. So that's all I've got to say for now and uh, look forward to having some questions. Thank you.
3: Hi everyone, I, I don't have any flashy slides. I apologise, I'm just going to chat if that's alright. So I'm Matt Finch, I'm the UK policy manager for an environmental NGO called Transport and Environment. We're, we're Europe's largest transport NGO, so there's about 100 of us spread around around Europe. Um, first thing to say is that I really hope I'm wrong. I really hope aviation can get to net zero by 2050. But. I just don't think it will. And all I'm going to do is inject some realism, some figures into some of the things that you constantly hear. (coughs) Excuse me. So you heard about the jet zero strategy. I'm the UK policy manager, so I'm going to focus on the UK. By 2050, the jet zero strategy has has various levers to to reduce itself down to zero. So 35% of emissions reduction actually comes from carbon pricing. Not being mentioned anywhere at all. About 35% comes from greenhouse gas removals. Haven't heard much about that yet. 20% comes from SAF. Great, we hear a lot about SAF. And only 4% from zero emission aircraft. And we hear loads about zero emission aircraft. It's the, it's the big topic. But it's a tiny, tiny amount of the thing we're aiming for in 20, 2050. <coughs> Excuse me. So let, let's talk SAF right now. In the UK, there are no dedicated UK SAF plants. There's the Phillips 66 plant. That, that can change, that can churn out SAF, but at the moment that churns out uh, biofuels for road. So the more SAF it produces, the less goes into decarbonising road transport. So there's a trade-off with that already. But, there's the, well, the, the, the UK government have supported eight proposals, eight dedicated SAF plants. If all those come to fruition, none of them have been built yet. There's no spades in the ground anywhere. If they all come to fruition, though, that's about 5% of UK jet fuel demand in 2030. Now, Transport Environment, a couple of years ago, crunched the numbers for Europe. And we, we worked out that if all of the waste um, produced in Europe in 2050 goes towards jet fuel, it would equal about 11% of total 2050 jet fuel demand. So you need to then, you need another option, and that option is always power to liquid, e-kerosene. Right now, same thing, there are no UK plants producing e-kerosene. To I'll need to look down to read these numbers out. To to get to 1% of 2030 jet fuel demand levels, you'll need 6.8 terawatt hours of electricity. Put that in context so a lot of you (laughs) deep deep breath put that in context that's about 15 percent of all of the uk's current offshore wind turbine production or it's equivalent to the the largest current uk wind farm being added and producing for for uh, aviation specifically for aviation that's to get one percent of 2030 jet fuel demand (coughs) Each additional quarter percent, quarter percent, 0.25, equals 53 new offshore wind turbines. So if we presume, crunch some numbers again, that the 80% of 2030 demand would be would come from power to liquid, you'd need 16,960 new wind turbines or about one and a half a day from now until 2050. All I'm doing is injecting the realism here. These are the numbers. That this, what, this is what needs to be built to achieve our targets. I mentioned previously, though, aviation's relying on reducing these figures via greenhouse gas removals. Exactly the same thing, though. The world's lar- th- th- there, is, there are a couple of greenhouse gas removals plant worldwide. There are none in the UK. The world's largest plant can suck about 4,000 tonnes of carbon out of the air. The Jet Zero strategy is predicting that we need to suck about 19 million tonnes out of the air in 2050. So we would need 4,750 of these plants in the UK by 2050, or 175 a year, or about one every two, three days to be built. Now I ask you, is, is this realistic, genuinely? Let's look at the cost of these plants. So at at current cost, the world's largest plant, which hopefully in 2050 will be quite small, but at current costs, uh, they charge 600 to $800 per tonne of carbon to remove. The UK ETS currently sits at about 78 pounds. Airlines aren't going to pay $600 a tonne. Let's be realistic here. Let's talk about energy. So, The Orca plan, the one in Iceland, the world's largest one right now, won't reveal the figures um, for the energy required to take carbon out of the air. However, they've said that in the future, they think that a tonne will be 2.65 megawatt hours per tonne. That's about how much a UK house consumes in about nine months. Where's all this energy coming from? We've We've got a large offshore wind industry, but it's just not as big as everyone wants it to be. So they're the numbers. The policies don't exist to get those numbers in place yet, but they're the numbers in the Jet Zero strategy or the numbers behind the numbers, I should say. I ask you, is it realistic? Over to you guys.
4: Good evening, everybody. Um, I'm Andy Jefferson, um, Programme Director of Sustainable Aviation, and uh, my my, it all feels a bit daunting, doesn't it? Um, the, um, the, my answer to both Finley and Matt is they're absolutely right. This is a really difficult challenge. Um, you know, we should not underestimate this at all. It's a really serious problem. Um, the question then becomes, can we fix it? Bob the Builder time. Um, I, I think from my point of view, I suppose my background is is 10 years in the airline industry originally, then 10 years in the airport sector, the last 10 and a half years working in sustainable aviation. Um, What I have seen is just the massive pace of change that we are now seeing in recognising this problem, committing to solve the problem, engaging in detailed plans about how we can do it. Is it difficult? We've got enormous mountains to climb, scaling up energy, uh, as Matt's just described. We've got mountains to climb in terms of producing that sustainable fuel in the volumes we need. We've got mountains to climb, as you'll have heard earlier today, about aerospace technology, hydrogen planes. How do we get these things made? Not just that, but then how do we make sure that airports are fit for purpose? They've got the infrastructure on the ground that can fuel these planes. These are all big challenges. But the one thing I really want you to think about is 103 years ago, we didn't exist. Our industry didn't happen. A couple of guys came up with the idea of putting a, you know, some strings and bits of wood and some cloth together and, and trying to fly. And everybody thought they were bonkers. You know, you're off your heads. It's never going to work. They did it. Then we've gone through a journey from that in 103 years to where we are now. And that's gone through pioneering innovation, change, constant challenge. You know, we could sit here and we could talk historically about the challenges that UK aviation has gone through. You know, innovations, jet engine, Comet, Concorde, A350, wing designs. The the whole journey has constantly been at places in that timeline where people have said it's never going to work. You're insane. Don't bother. We're now facing an existential crisis around climate that is not just UK based, it's not just aviation based, it's global. And it's every one of us are in this together. I think the other thing we're we're now in is a globalised society. We've created uh, a value out of that ability to travel and um, a need and desire from society globally to want to maintain that. So we have a really strong desire to want to keep doing it we have absolutely a problem on carbon that we've got, to, we've got to tackle. I think for me, I would describe this as mission possible. I, I, I've described it as a doable challenge. Um, I'm not underestimating the, the problem. I'm not saying that Jonathan and I can save it by ourselves. I actually really value Matt and Finlay because what they do is help Jonathan and I push these agendas through through the companies and the businesses we work for. Your voice is absolutely critical in that, as are all of you in the room, to make sure that your voices and concerns on this, this matter are heard, because it's by doing it collectively and with a strong voice that we will, we will push this forward. I think the other thing uh, that we, we have to accept is you know aviation, can't sit in its own little industry and fix this by itself. As Matt was describing, we've got a huge energy system problem that we've got to solve. We've got a huge financial system problem we've got to solve. There's not enough investment flowing through into decarbonizing uh, the stuff we produce. And, And that's not just aviation's problem, it's globally. However, We have got and we do know what the solutions are. We know what the technology solutions for aviation are. We know what the technology solutions are in the energy system. It's about scaling it up. So for me, I suppose, see it as a glass half full, a doable challenge and something that we can tackle. Um, I think I'm minded. I was listening to a, a speech by Robert Swan, who was the first guy to walk to both the North Pole and the South Pole. Uh, and he described uh, the situation he was in at the point at which he started doing that, which was, everybody told him he was mad, it's never going to happen, you can't do it, it's impossible, forget it. Um, and what he described was just the his belief that it can be done and to keep pushing and to keep trying and to get there, and he did it. And and, it, and, the, and the message he said is, it's always impossible until you've done it. So, so that... Uh, I'm not going to sit here and give you loads of facts and figures. I could do, but I'm not going to. Um, you need to decide. For me, I think we're moving to a space where you're all coming into this with passion, energy, and desire. A, to be involved in aviation. B, to see this problem fixed. Harnessing that, working with those of us that have been doing this for 20, 30 years, and perhaps getting a little bit jaded and need a bit of help, um, would be fantastic. So it's, in closing, it's a doable challenge. We can get to net zero by 2050. Let's work together and let's deliver it. Thank you.
0: Right, thank you. Good, spe- good speeches there. I'm sure there's a lot of questions and debate uh, around here. I'd like Mark to sort of take the role of moderator for the questions and the debate following on um, stand, stand there probably is the best there. I don't know, we'll uh, see how lively we can get. Over to you.
5: Yeah, so uh, just a bit of housekeeping. If, if you have a question, we've got a roaming mic that's um, being taken around the room. So if you have a question, please just raise your hand so I can see you and um, in, introduce yourself. Um, we try and keep the questions short, so if you want to make a point and then ask your question, that's fine, but let's try and keep them short so we've got enough time for everybody to ask their question. And um, if you've got it directed to a spe- specific person, um, please please do so. So, we have one over here, first question.
6: Thank you very much. Um, the two sides represented a struggle that I, myself, struggle with a lot. Um, working within the aviation industry but also feeling the pressure in the emergency shared by Finley and, and Mark. Um, my question to you is, um, if you understand the emergency that we're in and the mountain of work, as you said it yourself, that we have to do, I sometimes wonder why there is no more alarmism in these reports. For example, the LTG has a gap between the achievable reduction by 2050 and zero, and no one seems to mind. It seems like that's fine, and if you compare that to safety, for example, let's say an aircraft's gonna be, by 2050, gonna be crashing, the entire aviation industry would be up in the air and and, and screaming, yet there seems to be no alarmism from the people that can actually make a change by being alarmist, by being alarmed
2: well maybe i can have a, have a go. i mean we have never been more focused as an industry on on this issue we recognize it, it's existential you know we won't so we won't be here unless we solve this problem you know and that's why uh, uh, airlines are putting so much investment in this. and specific on your ltag so uh, and this just comes to the governance of akao they can only they've only got the remit to look at in sector emissions reduction for that so the, the, the terms of reference for that specific report was to focus on the emissions that we can reduce in the sector. Everyone knows the balance is absolutely critical. So that's the out-of-sector uh, 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 you know, reductions, which will have to come from either removals or offsets. And I think to, uh, to Matt's point, and we don't talk about, about co- uh, Corsia, and we absolutely agree with Finley's point. You know, Corsia for you, those that don't know, is the carbon offsetting and reduction scheme for international aviation. So that was agreed at a KO back in 2016. And again, it was a compromise. Of course it's not strong enough, and we recognize that. But there is no other industry that has any instrument, global instrument, to address its carbon emissions. We were heavily involved in that, the development of Corsair, and we felt the compromise was worth it to get a global scheme and then focus on, and inbuilt within the CORSIA mechanism is a three-year review period. What was the compromise? Well, it's only uh, addressing emissions over a baseline. We would rather have addressed all emissions. Uh, It's only to 2035, and it's an offset scheme. Our original proposal is a global emissions trading scheme to cover everything, but we recognise you've got 195 states to get on board here, and I won't bore you with the history with what happened with the EU emissions trading scheme in 2012, but that wasn't helpful. So we recognise it's a compromise. There is a concerted effort to strengthen CORSIA, But I will say, you know, we had the, the Acheo General Assembly. Originally, that was on 100% 2019 baseline, and it's agreed that it's 85%. So that is the start of that strengthening process. So pre that, the amount of um, carbon reduction through CORSIA was about a billion tonnes at the 100%. <laughs> By going to the 85%, it's nearer 2 billion tonnes. So there you go, there is the industry that is accepted we're going to need to reduce an additional billion tonnes. That's just the start. We know that it's, it's absolutely, it's got to extend beyond 2035. It's got to cover all of our emissions because how are we going to deliver net zero? It's just over a baseline. And ideally, it should be looking at removals, not offsets. Now, I know there's lots of issues about offsets, uh, but I would I say that um, um, ICAO set the guidelines on which offsets you can use, and they are the most stringent criteria on the planet. Yeah. So much so when they, they set out um, um, uh, a programme where offset providers could qualify for eligibility in Corsia and there wasn't anybody met the standards. They were so stringent. So, And that's right. Uh, well, our view is the reputation of our industry is uh, uh, directly attributable to the quality of the offsets. We're as good as the worst offset within Corsia. So we're very, very um, uh, 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 close to and, and, and want to ensure that Corsia only allows the most sustainable offsets and in fact and i think corsia has a huge role globally to actually drive up the global standard of offsets so you know so uh, uh, to your point absolutely we take this seriously we see it as an existential risk you know and we're going to work as hard as we can to deliver okay um don't
5: read that back in the report
4: yeah i so i think i i would just add uh, i i agree when you read uh, what's formally published, it can sometimes feel frustrating and it can feel like there are gaps. Um, I think what what I see and have seen in the last 10 years um, is, is, and I think Finlay touched on some of this, is some of this political, um, not interference, but just kind of lethargy in process. And, you know, Jonathan described there, actually, from a UK point of view, both industry and government were pushing for even more stringent processes and they wanted to see all of those gaps closed out. The reality was if we pushed that from a UK perspective we would have ended up with no long-term aviation goal agreed at ICAO because certain countries would have refused to sign, therefore there's no agreement. There's a little bit here of kind of we have to get certain bits of the framework agreed whilst we're still working behind the scenes. So the UK, stimulated actually by the industry here, set up this international coalition for international aviation. Um, Last year on the back of COP26, they brought countries together and said, we need to get a commitment to net zero 2050. If I'm really honest, you know, running up to ICAO last year, there was a real risk. Certain countries would, were trying to actively derail a long term program. So this is where you've got these interferences, which, which are quite frankly, frustrating for Jonathan Airlines, Aerospace, and everybody, you know, that's involved in it, because quite frankly, we're already committed. We want to do it, but we do need those governments on board. So, I would say, read the report, see what the gaps are, but do do come back to us and say, why is it saying that? You know, is this the end of the story, or is there more to it? Uh, just to add, and I think the,
2: I mean, you're, I mean they, they don't. There's, there's some real complex issues at a global level. You know, we still CBDR for those that that, are common but differentiated responsibility. So we have the exactly the same issue that plays out the United Nations, developing countries absolutely believe that developed countries need to take the lead. So because you created most emissions and that and that that is really large at IKEA, we have that problem. Um, uh, But so and it was great. I mean, to me, look at look at the agreement, getting that agreement, long term commitment in the LTAG report, it mentioned the cost of net zero. So to be, to the developing countries, their biggest fear by committing to these ambitious climate change targets is will it slow down our development? You know, because it's going to cost a lot of money. LTG report says the cost of delivering net zero emissions for aviation is between one and a half and three trillion dollars. know, this is not trivial. No, that is that is massive. But the countries, all the countries that signed up to the LTG, they accept that that is a cost that, you know, if we want this industry to survive and thrive, that is a cost we have to bear.
5: Okay, let's give uh, Finley an opportunity to uh, respond.
1: Yeah, there's just a couple of points I wanted to pick up on there. Um, so the first thing was just this, this aspect of we're the first industry to have a net zero strategy. We're one of the only industries not to be part of the NDCs, the nationally determined contributions that are submitted under Paris. So countries have to make... Um, yeah, they have to commit to emissions <laughs> reductions across their economy. It's meant to be economy-wide. That's what it says in the Paris Agreement. International shipping and aviation are not included in that. And the- that was
2: a United Nations decision, not an industry decision. That was a United Nations decision in 1997 that climate change will be delegated to a KO and the IMO. It's nothing to do that's not that. That was a United Nations decision, not the industry. I'm
1: just saying... A, a, but yeah. uh, every other sector is already in, in, already has to decarbonize. Oh, no, just to
2: explain that, that was the United Nations decision to do that because a KO is the... So it was felt by the UN, that was the appropriate place to address it. So that, you, you positioned it as if it was to no, do. I'm just saying, it, it, yeah.
1: every it's, it's not to say every sector doesn't need to decarbonize because they are already part of the NDCs and have to do so. Um, so the, the next thing is, it was great you agreed that it's not strong enough and we need to reform it. Absolutely. Then Absolutely. your points about what needs to happen were... Bit worrying because, well, so firstly, we talk about high quality offsets. If you look at the cost of Corsair offsets, they're like two dollars, um, and they don't cover most CO two emissions. So if you look at the effective carbon price, it's a fraction of a dollar. Um, try and tell me that you can. if-,
2: if It's, it's near a sixteen actually. If you look at um, CORSIA eligible, um, it's low. It's too low. I agree with you. Sixteen dollars is too low. Uh, our view is it needs to align with prices in the EU Emissions Trading Scheme. So we need to work
1: to get that, get there. $16 is too low. Yeah. Yeah. Far, far too low, $2. because the current cost of greenhouse gas emission removal is about $1,000 per tonne of CO2. Um, and again, it does. It, it, there's a very low coverage of CO2 and no coverage of non-CO2. So the effective price is a fraction of that. That $16 is higher than I've ever heard, news to me, but you, it's a fraction of that NOA anyway, and $16 is low. The next thing is around this kind of frustration with government interference. Um, ICAO is a very uh, opaque, untransparent process. There's a lot of industry involvement and a lot of industry, um, there's a lot of industry lobby groups that are allowed into that process um, as well. And I think we should be mindful of that. But I just want to actually, rather than kind of give an environmental view, this is the view of the United Airlines CEO, who pointed out that at current emissions, um, we'd have to cover the entire planet in trees to offset our emissions. Um, and if we if we cover the entire planet in trees, that's about a few years worth of humanity's emissions, and we'd be pretty screwed because we'd have no farmland <laughs> left. So he kind of said it, it's an absurd principle, um, and it, it just doesn't make any sense. So the fact that we've got the main bit of policy is reliant on offsets for the next 15 years, it doesn't matter after 2035, we've blown our budget by 2030, after 2035 is irrelevant. Um, so. And if the UK has a position on this, it would be interesting to know what they do want to change with Corsia. Do they? Do we agree that we need a carbon budget? And do we agree that it needs to be allocated by country and by sector? Um, and that we need fundamentally a cap on fossil fuels that reduces towards zero, not by 2050, but in the next 15 years.
4: Um, so it's all good points, Finley. I, I mean, I won't answer behalf of the UK government <laughs> quite know what they think, to be honest, right now. but. Um, the A couple of things, so on carbon carbon offset versus removal, I think we, we as, as industry agree with you that it needs to be removal, not offset. Um, we are actually, I mean, within Sustainable Aviation, we've got Carbon Engineering, who are a new member in the last few years. Now they're doing some really interesting stuff, direct engineered carbon removal, working out in Vancouver and British Columbia. They are looking uh, and talking about creating a a facility at the moment in northeast Scotland near St Fergus um, that will be reverse engineering what with the oil and gas fields out there. So sucking the carbon out of the atmosphere, storing it uh, geologically underground. Um, They're also looking at the power to liquid uh, solutions that Matt was talking about. Um, And they are looking to scale up um, and to do that more widely. Uh, The UK has a carbon capture storage strategy. But to be fair, that's mainly driven by energy sector, not by us. We as aviation are in, uh, increasingly going to government saying you need to be <laughs> recognizing that we need to be, uh, you need to see effectively aviation as a serious investor in carbon removal. Um, carbon removal for us, uh, as our roadmap says, is, is our kind of uh, measure of last resort after efficiency, after uh, technology and after sustainable fuels. Um, the other thing I would say in the short term um, is this opportunity around contrails. Jonathan touched on it, but actually uh, a lot of really interesting climate science going on with uh, uh, industry and, and governments at the moment. Um, you know, if we can stop those nighttime contrails, which is the ones that are driving that uh, contrail warming, we can have a dramatic immediate almost benefit in, in reducing that non-CO2 impact. So one thing we're looking at, uh, you'll have seen the work Satavio doing with Etiad where they've been doing trials to stop those contrails. Um, we're really keen to explore how we can scale that up and scale it up quickly. Um, it, there's been some interesting work across the North Atlantic with NATS, Nav Canada, British Airways, and others on how they can do that, feels like we're on the cusp of that. And, and you know, it's 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 actually a relatively small percentage of aircraft flights that we're talking about here. So it feels quite doable. And although there'll be a you know a, a relatively minor fuel burn penalty if we can take those contrails out, we'll have a dramatic non-CO2 benefit. So again, it feels to me that you know the solutions are there, but they need to be scaled up. Um, I think I think the broader stuff with government and policy is you know we've just got to keep plugging away at it from all the angles we possibly can to get the solutions happening quicker. I think the 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 risk I have a little bit is this kind of UK first mover yeah. let's do it here and then hopefully the rest will follow approach. I think if we do that, the risk we create is a, a UK isolation, problem with a global industry so we say we uh, do demand management in the UK and we reduce flying to tackle climate change fine we've done that in the UK will everybody else follow that suit or not or will they take advantage of the fact we're not doing it Um, you, you know I think there's some interesting issues there that you know we need to be careful how we use our skills knowledge expertise in this country to drive a global solution, not just a UK solution. Just a quick right. point. Jon- Jonathan, just hang on one second. I'm going to give um, Sorry, Matt an Matt, opportunity Matt, no. to come back in.
3: Um, well, I'm going to refer back to Jonathan's answer, actually, but and also refer you guys back to the original question. The, the ICAO process moves at a glacial speed. It's softly, softly, for, for, for reasons. Yeah, we, we understand those reasons. Oh, yeah. 2050 doesn't move. 1st of January 2050 is the target. Carbon budget is roughly 20, 30, 20, 35. The date doesn't move. The, the glacial speed of ICAO doesn't match the urgency of the targets that have been set. <laughs>
2: and I, 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 can't, I can't disagree with that. I mean, it is an incredibly frustrating process. You know, any work with the United Nations, you're trying to get 195 states to agree to anything, and it is challenging. But there has been movement, and yeah, industry is involved. NGOs are very heavily involved in ICAO. You know, through ICSA. So Tim Johnson, who represents the edge, TE, I've spent many general assemblies with people from T and E, and we're very closely aligned. And you know, you've been a great enabler in some of the work at, at, at KO. And on my view is let's work together, industry with the NGO community, we've got to make the KO move faster. There is a willingness. I've seen a palpable change. I started going to the KO General Assemblies in 2009 and boy that was hard yeah and and to be honest if you'd asked me in January this year are we going to get a long-term aspirational goal agreement I would have said no but you know it happened and I think there is an hour recognition across particularly developing countries you know the, the you know the EU the US and the developed <coughs> countries we all get it you know, the challenges you know within a care 195 states 130 of those states are developing countries and they are very nervous they depend on aviation for their future development. And they're thinking, if I agree to this, it's going to slow down my development. But they're coming on board. China's coming on board. You know, The South American countries are coming on board. They recognise this is an existential risk. I think working together, absolutely, we have to move a KO faster. The next General Assembly in 2025, let's get that bigger ambition on Corsair. Let's get it. We've got to start that downward trajectory to net zero. We've got to include removals, you know, and we've got to up that price. You know, $16, $16, and it is $16. It's not enough to drive decarbonization, but I think collaboratively we can get there faster. Okay, we're
5: going to move on to another question. uh, And I initially warned the audience about long questions, but I'm going to (laughs) warn the panel now about long responses because (laughs) I was very lenient in round one but I will be less lenient in the future. <laughs> Keep your responses to the point, please. Okay, so there was a question here at the front, Roger,
7: and then uh, there's a couple I'm, there, so we'll take Roger that. Roger Gardner, UK Aerospace Research Consortium. Oh, no. I think it's the people oh you. sorry. Hi. Roger Gardner, UK Research Consortium. Um, I voted against the motion um, because I think our toolbox is looking pretty good. Um, There are a lot of things, whether they're at the technology level, at the infrastructure level, the energy (coughs) level, the policy level, the economic level. I mean, there are lots of levers that can be pulled. My problem, uh, which gives me reservation about having voted against, is about political will and commitment and pace. Do you really think that you can actually get the full international community to actually Give that level of additional commitment to really make that difference, because that's the thing that's stopping it. No, Was
2: that sure enough? I will i be like, to me, look at the evidence of what we see, and I think you know the. I think the UK and Europe, you know, absolutely. There's the Fit for Fifty Five package that has just been, you know, uh, largely agreed on the UTS side this week. You know, that is that is extremely ambitious, but the key enabler, I think, is the US. You know, the U.S. have always been the problem for us uh, because climate change is a difficult subject to address. They, in the last two years, they've come on board. They set the grand challenge on SAF uh, uh, last year. You know, so they've gone from 0% commitment to SAF to 15% by 2030. You know, this is 5 million tonnes a year of sustainable aviation fuels. They recognise this is a big issue for them. And, uh, you know, and I think, so it is moving. It is moving. Hydrogen-powered aircraft who was thinking about hydrogen powered aircraft five years ago and now we've got hydrogen powered aircraft flying. Yeah. The rate of change is, you know, and and government, and we won't have an aviation industry if we don't address it. I think people are waking up to that as well.
5: Finley.
1: So the the biggest, so basically it's, it's existential that we need to do something about this. So we need to push politics in the right direction. There is, there's a couple of massive um, things in the way of that, and not least the aviation industry lobbying against some of the direct policies that would benefit rapid decarbonization of the aviation industry. So you mentioned hydrogen. Airbus worked on hydrogen 20 years ago. They dropped it in 2010 because it was too expensive compared to untaxed fossil fuel. Um, they said they'd ramp up biofuels. IATA, you've been part of IATA since mid-2000s. They promised 20% SAF, I think, by 2020. We're at 0.1%. So why are we not using these alternatives? It's because fossil fuel remains unconstrained, it remains subsidized, it remains unpriced. We need to reduce those subsidies, we need to tax fossil fuel. What is IATA's position? What is sustainable aviation's position on jet fuel tax? It won't help with decarbonization. We need that money to help decarbonize. Now, that, and I think this is the big the big stumbling block um, because I wanted to work on this technology. I really did. I've been pushing to work on it. But fossil fuel is so cheap that we're not innovating as fast as we could do. You know, we're talking about mission impossible, but put, put the faith in the engineers and the aerospace engineers by applying the carbon budgets and applying a higher price and let us innovate. We're being held back by a lack of policy. Um, so. Yeah, I think, I think that's the important thing. I think aviation workers need to understand that. And us as an industry actively ask our leaders to stop greenwashing and getting in the way of the, the, the specific policies that are required to achieve this. Because we can have these ambitions, but without the policy, we're never going to get there.
2: All right. Quick, 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 quick response to that. And I, Very I absolutely quick. agree. And the reason that there's missed commitments from IATA, they're always predicated on policy. And we had, up till now, there's been no policy support on SAF. So we're always clear, you're not going to get a SAF plant unless you've got policy support. Every renewable industry has had policy support. We're starting to see that. We are starting to see that in the US. The US policy support, we have California, and we have the uh, Inflation, uh, Inflation Reduction Act. That is why all the actions in the States. We, we don't. We support carbon pricing. Carbon pricing is the way to address climate change, not taxes. Taxes are revenue-raising. They don't address... They don't same help thing. car So absolutely, we support carbon pricing because a tax does nothing. Jet fuel taxes. So yeah.
1: fuel use is proportional to CO2. You burn a kilogram of fuel, uh, you produce three kilograms of CO2. It's the same thing. There's no difference.
4: Yeah, I, I don't disagree. I, th- I think the problem with tax, particularly in the UK, is that if we had a tax on jet fuel today, uh, we've seen this with air passenger duty, we're seeing it with emissions training scheme, the UK government don't give it back to us to tackle the problem. So they don't give it, it it to the industry or to you to tackle the problem. That's that's the problem with the tax thing. Um, and at the moment, obviously, if we tax in the UK and we don't tax elsewhere, you basically just make flying out of the UK more expensive than, than elsewhere. So we've got to do this. I completely agree. We've got to get the revenue in to, ta- to to scale up the problems. But actually, what we need to think about is, A, what do we all do? What, what We all have a voice in this in terms of, who we elect in the government, um, but we also um, have to find that sensible solution that brings that guarantees the money comes back in to tackle the problem. The moment if we leave it to tax, I fear that won't happen because governments will use the tax. For, Where's the
1: money coming from? I if just, We're not going to tax jet fuel. I just
2: reminded we pay four billion pounds a year in tax in the UK in the form of air passenger duty, and it hasn't saved one ton of CO2. Four billion pounds a year
5: of tax so doesn't work. Roger. Are you assured? Um no. No, <laughs> I, I not entirely.
7: I I i have experience of ICAO and it is glacial, as you say, I worry about your stats now. But oh sorry. I, glacial and I worry about your stats. So um, I'm I think it could be done if only we could actually find a way. And it probably requires all these youngsters in the room to actually be the army that actually really pushes this? Because it's going to, not going to be in my hands. It's, it, but how do you actually Great. mobilize people to actually get the message into government, to lobby, to talk to MPs, to push government? Uh, because mm-hmm. without that, we are potentially doomed. Um, uh, it's, it's politics. It's all politics.
5: Okay, so we had one question here. Let's take two this time. So, one question here
8: and then one over there. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Hi, uh, Michael Halby, I'm at MUFG Bank. Um, I, I probably have more of a comment than a question. I think one of the key things that we need to consider when we talk about aviation is that it's a capital intensive industry, and you need to come to us for the money. Mm-hmm. And we're getting pressure, right, from our shareholders from net zero banking, whatever, any number of impact, I mean, any number of groups that we're, we're a part of. And so we we have to, I sort of sit between, I guess the two of you, the two groups <laughs> here. I feel like m- the mother needs to bang some heads together, but you know, it's, um, so I, I have sympathy on, on both sides. I I, <clears throat> But I think it's more than just aviation, right? Because because it's a capital intensive industry, you're depending on financiers to finance this. And we're getting, I I got involved in ESG probably six years ago, and I was, I was like the idiot in the corner because why are you talking about ESG and aviation? It's never gonna happen. I probably spend three hours a day on ESG now, right. which I really enjoy and I'm passionate about, it and we need to address it. Um, but I guess maybe my, question, my, my point is really my, more on this side, which is it's not just aviation that's under pressure, we're under pressure to finance it. And it might come to a situation where we're told by any number of governments, associations, whatever the case may be, that we can't finance IAG, or if we do, it's going to be at some extortionate interest rate or whatever the case may be. So there, it, this is a much bigger issue than just what an airline is doing. And and I think, yeah, anyway, so that, that's, I didn't have a question, sorry, I was just my point. <laughs> okay, thanks, my, one over I,
4: here. I was just going to really
5: quickly- Yeah, go ahead. Just say, well, while um, the microphone's moving across.
4: Yeah, um, totally agree. I think one of the challenges we're getting from industry is the banks are too risk-averse to invest. So, And and because some of these projects like sustainable fuels or hydrogen aircraft or uh, carbon removals, uh, when you run it through your kind of risk assessment, do I invest or not computer, for want of a better term, the answer comes out no at the moment. So I think that the thing we need to work on is how do we get your computer to say yes rather than no. Okay. Uh, Hi, yeah. Uh,
9: my name is Marsha. Uh, hey, my question is aimed at Matt and Finlay. I just want to ask... What would you say to a person who has lost all hope?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so th- that, that's the first step. And um, in, in, in grief, isn't it? The first step is is despair. Um, and you, you need to mobilize that into action. Um, and then you need to start doing something about it because this is existential. We're fighting for the future of humanity for every species on the planet. Um, you know, we talked about how important aviation is to development. Well, Pakistan aren't feeling that at the moment. They're they're feeling massive financial impacts, and and you know, human right like lots of people have died more than just financial um, from the immediate impacts of climate change. A lot of runways around the world are going to go underwater. Um, San Francisco is already spending a billion dollars in like making its seawall higher around its airport because of the impacts of climate change. This is going to impact us. Um, so we, we need to do something about it. It's massive. Um, and what you need to do is move out of the despair into the action. Um, I have felt that, I feel that all the time, but it's about strategizing, organizing, and trying to overthrow the people in power, basically. We need to change the corporate world and we need to change the political world. And we can only do that if we work together um, and if we're really smart about it. So come and join Safe Landing.
2: And just, to, just, I mean, I, I, I share your. When I first started in this role, I would say shortly after the global, the the, the lowest point for me was the global financial crisis, because the world. I mean, we had two thousand and seven, eight, the um, Stern report. There was a massive focus on climate change, and we're all hopeful great we were on a trajectory global financial crisis and it just disappeared and the joke was the most unsustainable job in the world is sustainability jobs because literally companies have got rid of them but I have to say in the last 10 years you know everybody is taking this seriously you know we absolutely agree this is an existential risk we won't survive and come and spend a day at our company we'll invite you and come and see the passion in our organization to address this and it's top to bottom You know, I have pilots coming to me every day. I have capping crew coming to me every day. Say, look, what can we do to help? Come and talk to our CEO. Hear it from him how seriously he takes this. And hopefully that will convince you that we absolutely are going to do this.
3: Matt? If you you look around the world at at different sectors and different industries, there's hope out there. So I'm fortunate enough to not just work in aviation. I work across all of transport. And about 10 years ago, every single... Auto manufacturers so like Ford, Toyota, etc. absolutely said there's no way we can develop an electric car um, before 2040. And then Tesla came along, and now Ford's position is that they're not going to sell any combustion vehicles after 2030 in Europe. And it flipped that quickly. So it can be done. The, the other great example is the coronavirus, coronavirus um, antidote vaccine. Remember at the beginning of the pandemic, everyone said, well, it takes seven years to develop a vaccine, except we all got three shots in two years, three shots in our arm in two years. So, again, with the will, it can be done. Do I think aviation will do it? Is there enough will there, political will there? I just, I just don't see it.
4: And I suppose I, I, I agree with all of them, but I would say um, it can feel really dark and 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 be careful about just receiving the bad news because i think you just drive yourself into a darker space try and reach out and see what's happening and see the innovation opportunities i mean i tend to try and watch videos that talk to me about things that are happening things that have been delivered now and then i question myself and say how can i as a person help that happen quicker what is it i can do um as jonathan said there are hundreds of people across every all of those members Jonathan showed earlier that are working on this right now. We need thousands of you, not just hundreds of you. So join the fight, get involved and let's solve the problem. Great. Thank you. Um, question at the back there.
5: And, and Hello. then after you. Thanks for
9: the presentation. Uh, my name is Ali. I may uh, I get changed like the talk from pretty things to technical things because I'm a researcher in the hydrogen and natural gases combustion. Uh, actually there are many challenges for the hydrogen um, and also I have a question like in the slides you say net zero emissions do you mean the CO2 only or you mean also the other emissions like the NOx because like in the hydrogen you can't avoid the NOx the NOx has existed uh, and also there are many challenging like uh, the tank like to have a, a liquid hydrogen you need like minus 250 degree to handle that. And also, in comparison between the energy and uh, and density, you need four times uh, of the tank, of the uh, jet fuel. And also the the danger about the hydrogen. There are many challenges. Are they like considered in the uh, plan of uh, 2050?
2: Hey, well, maybe thanks. if I can I start. You know, so technically, net zero emissions. So if you look at the goal agreed by ACAO, it's CO2. But the position we've always taken: we'll follow the science. So whatever we need to do, if there's other emissions and there's non-CO2 effects, we need to, you know, we need to follow the science and reduce whatever it takes to reduce our climate change. Which is why you know, there's there's a there's a working group, for instance, ACAO, on non-CO2. So there's now quite a lot of focus going on. You know, we recognise this is another effect. It's not technically in that target. But we recognise... Now, the exciting bit with non-CO2, I think there's going to be mitigation opportunities before you need to regulate against it, as we mentioned earlier. But I absolutely agree with you on hydrogen. There are significant technical challenges to overcome, and it's the volume density is the biggest one, which is why we believe it is really commuter regional short haul. We don't think you're going to be able to get to medium and long haul flying, but that's still a significant contribution to decarbonisation plan. We need everything. You know, we're not going to say it's only one thing. The reason, uh, you know, we, we really are going to invest in hydrogen because somewhere in our system, we're going to need hydrogen. Now, for power to liquids, and I think, you know, power to liquids, ultimately, as we get closer to 2050, the majority of SAF will be power to liquids. They rely on you need significant volumes of green hydrogen. So that's why we as an industry, we just support the development of that uh, hydrogen ecosystem. You also need significant amounts of renewable electricity. So we're realistic around you know, when we can get there. Uh, just, to, just as a, you know, the EU are uh, very positive about PTL, powder liquids, which is why they set a sub target within their mandate. So they currently look at driving 2% of sustainable aviation fuels by 2030 as powder liquids. So there is, a, you know, there is a drive to get there sooner.
5: Okay, um, I don't see any urgent response, so we'll move on to the next question, I think. So, one there.
10: Yeah, hi, I'm, I'm Poppy, so I'm a recent aerospace engineering graduate, so relatively new to the industry still. Um, and I've just started a PhD um, looking at SAFs with with roles, so that's something I'm quite passionate about. But my question, and perhaps this is something that actually both sides might be able to agree on, I'm not too sure, is um, what is the biggest barrier to overcoming meeting net zero by 2050? Is it, as we've touched upon, is it to do with the politics, the policy? Is it the supply? Is it that the technology just isn't quite ready yet? What's, and I know it's a combination of all of it, but what is that one key driver that is stopping this from from happening now?
5: Okay. Quick response from all yeah. four of you, I think. So,
1: so it's, it's lack of policy and you need to, so you need to penalise fossil fuel and and incentivise the other things. But the, the key debate and, and think what you'll find fundamentally the difference to the two sides here is the side on the left thinks that money should come from the government or from elsewhere and we think that it, we're in a cost of living crisis the industry's already very subsidized it's unrealistic to expect the amount of money which is doing the calculations for e-fuels you're at your multiple trillions of dollars to be raised but from the average person who actually doesn't fly Even in the UK, we have the highest per capita flights almost anywhere in the world. Half the population don't fly in a given year. It's only about 15% of people that take 70% of flights. And actually, they're more likely to be long haul. It's probably 5% of people, 90% of emissions. So that would be incredibly unjust, but also just incredibly unlikely, eh, to be raising that amount of capital from the general taxpayer. And so so that's agree. agree. it's it's
2: policy. It's absolutely policy, but you're 100% wrong. We're not asking for any money from the government. We don't. We believe it's carbon pricing, and it should be funded by the by by the industry. We believe user pays, polluter pays, and so I'll give you a, a real example today around uh, uh, SAF plants in the UK. So, yet yeah, mandate we support a mandate because that will create a demand signal. But you need a price stability mechanism if you're going to track the finance. You know, and all the investors we've spoken to is you need some uh, a price stability mechanism that minimises downside risk. We're all going to take some risk here. Now, the, the best way to do that is fund that through UK ETS revenues. So the, the emissions trading it's scheme just... was set up so that the money raised, it's industry money, it's not tax take, industry money, aviation pays into that, it should be recycled back to support low-carbon projects. So as a classic example, that's, we believe that money should be used to support a price stability mechanism for SAF. We're not asking for any money from the government. We're just asking them to use the ETS revenues as it was originally designed and set up
5: for. Okay, and we'll go in the order. So, Matt?
3: Um, I I actually agree with Jonathan. I'd be happy if ETS revenues were recycled back in, Um, as long as the ETS was applied to every single carbon emission from aviation. Because at the moment, 70% of them, not in the ETS scheme. Um, But to answer your question, so policy drives things. So policy is the first thing you need and and at the moment that's lacking. But then there's just an engineering challenge behind it. I I mentioned the number of plants and the number of wind turbines needed. You, You can't just get policy and click your fingers and they're in place overnight. You need to wrap it. This is a big industry already. The offshore wind industry is a big industry. But to scale it to the size needed just for aviation, whilst also doing it for everything else, you know, the, the whole of society needs to decarbonize. We are nowhere near the scale it needs to be. Yet, and that will take years to get to that scale. We're probably looking at the late 2030s. There.
4: Okay, Andy? Uh, so agree with <clears throat> with what people have been saying. it is policy, but it 's also about joining that policy up so that it accelerates progress so we have we 're talking about an aviation policy there 's an energy policy there's a you know a policies on a load of other stuff at the moment, those policies are at risk of pulling against each other and slowing the whole process down so actually, one of the biggest things we need to do is make sure that things like an energy policy is absolutely in lockstep with decarbonizing aviation because if it 's not. Matt's right, we won't get the wind turbines in the sufficient volumes we need, we won't get the green hydrogen production in the volumes we need. Um, The other thing, just to sort of reinforce from Jonathan's point of view is, is, and I agree with, if we uh, the reason policy is important is, is that it needs to send the signal through the finance system that it's safe to invest. At the moment, the finance system, from my limited perspective, is wanting to, is interested in, but actually it's saying it's a bit risky and I'll invest somewhere else, which is what we're seeing with sustainable fuels in the US versus UK. So we need to just change that and change it quickly. Okay, thanks, so four policy
5: responses. Okay, (laughs) we're gonna move on then, next question, Robert.
4: Robert
2: Whitfield from Green by Design. Um, Jonathan, you uh, argued strongly for carbon pricing and totally uh, support that as an idea. But even with that, that is a sort of a, a, a flat, charge. It is not progressive. Uh, with our own incomes, society
10: has come to accept progressive taxation. If, mm. you, if you earn a great deal of money, then you get charged a higher percentage of your of your income as tax.
2: Surely we, we should be doing the same thing with, with carbon, and that leads to, in aviation, that leads to a frequent flyer levy. Isn't it time to address such an idea?
11: Can we
5: take, can we take two questions? On? Sorry. So, One on the frequent fire levy and then one just on the way. Hi, I'm Kieran from the University of Bristol, PhD student. So it's a question more for um, Jonathan and Andy. So with the sheer scale of the technological and economic crisis that we face, so meeting net zero by 2050, so is it one to two trillion you said that we're Mm going to have to pay between now and then? Why is it that the fact that frequent flyer levies and active demand management are always derided as unreasonable and unfeasible. So so it's a similar policy measure.
2: So so basically, I mean, the way we're going to solve this problem is have a global carbon price signal. It's not by the UK penalising people to fly. Now, UK is a tiny proportion of global emissions. Why does global carbon pricing work? Because it sends a signal to the low carbon development industries to technology industries because they've suddenly got an incentive it's to the Airbuses, the boeings the rolls royces the carbon removal companies and 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 the strength of that signal it needs to be high so i agree that 16 dollars is not no. so part of that is you need a reasonable price so it provides the right incentive but it needs to be a global price if you have disjointed mechanisms by country you know nobody can invest on that basis so having these sliding scale, different, complicated schemes. So the, the thing that kills price signal strength is fragmented global policy. So Britain deciding it's gonna have a sliding scale of carbon pricing is just hopeless. It's, I mean, you are just got to penalize this country. You know, and the thing, go back to the science. Fundamentally, climate change, every ton of CO2 has the same impact. Therefore, you chart, you know, it should have the same carbon price. We just need to make sure that it's global and it's a strong price. You know, and and I agree. That's why we need to work collectively with the mechanisms that we've got, Corsier, to get that global uh, price signal. Now, in the interim, we know that takes time. ICAO is glacial. It is moving faster. It might not feel like it. Come and join us in, in Montreal. It is very different to where it was 10 years ago, you know, because most of the people there were fighting any policy on you didn't get you wouldn't have got I and mean, if you if you if you spoke about an L tag 10 years ago at KO you'd have been laughed out of the place the fact that we got that agreement despite you know so but i recognize in parallel you need you know things like the emissions trading schemes but ultimately they all have to feed into getting this global carbon price that's the way we're going to get, accelerate uh, low carbon technology
5: okay
1: yeah. finley well, it's just a bit of a contradiction there, because we're saying we can't do anything uh, unilaterally as the UK, but then globally, it, it's glacial. So we're in a bit of a sticky situation where we need to do something different. Um, now, clearly, there's nothing preventing us doing bilateral agreements, um, and clearly, there's a massive responsibility on historical emitters to move first, um, and that is the US and China, and it's also the UK. We're, um, and it, this is about, like, fundamentally, this is the problem here with the climate crisis. No country wants to move before the other. The biggest emitters are the most powerful, and they, don't, and they want to keep their power. And they don't want to actually ration themselves. Now, we're all going to die, so we need to stop this happening. That's why we need to stand up and be morally responsible and call this out. We're missing a carbon budget, and we're missing fair allocation of that budget between countries. Until we get that, we were all going to die, so we need to be pushing for it.
5: Um, Andy?
4: Yeah, um, I actually quite quite like what Finley said there, um, and I feel feel that quite strongly personally. But um, I think for me, there is the question of should polluter pay? Should should aviation be paying its fair contribution to the carbon problem? Absolutely. You know, none of us disagree in sustainable aviation. It's just how do we do that uh, in an effective way that doesn't doesn't penalise us as kind of people who want to kind of take a leadership role on this, which is how it feels at the moment. I think fundamentally, um, the other thing I'm thinking about right now is actually, is is that process going to get us where we need with the volume of cash we need to scale up the solutions quick enough? Probably not. So, yes, it's the right thing to do. We need to do it. We need to find the way through. But we actually need to be pushing on all those other levers, like how do we talk to the financial system more broadly about how do we solve this investment decision right now um, you know what what's the policy they need? what's the signal they need? how do we move that quicker not just you know from a UK point of view, but globally because at the moment we are looking at a major investment in infrastructure which you raised and uh, you know that's the bit we've got to tackle right now. The scaling up is the most important thing we need to do in the next five to ten years of these solutions. if we don't do that, then we will be in a, in in all the wrong places, and and we'll all suffer as a result. Okay, and Matt,
3: yeah, I'm going to inject some realism again. Um, there are nine ICAO general assemblies left before 2050. That's it. <laughs> Come to the
1: next
3: one. We've said it. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> just the frequent flyer levy. There's a, if you just Google ICCT frequent flyer levy, you'll find that they think we need 120 billion dollars a year to decarbonize the aviation sector, and you could raise that money with a frequent flyer levy. That would mean the polluter pays. I can fly across Europe for £10 right now, the polluter does not pay.
5: So we've kind of been touching upon demand management there, and also policy. I think policy was the one that you all raised as the biggest barrier. Um, Matt's example of electric cars, that's a very different kind of policy, right, where countries committed to just um, a date by which there would be no more internal combustion engine cars sold. And it was almost as if they were playing a game of one-upmanship. So, you know, one country went for 2040 and the next country came along and said, no, we can do it by 2038 and then 2040, uh, 2035, etc. Is there anything like that that that, you know, could work could we learn from the car industry could we learn from lessons well it it,
3: it wasn't quite like that there were there were other regulations um so the the oems the auto manufacturers uh, were given fleet co2 average targets to hit and that they were decreasing targets Uh, and that happened in about 2005 at an eu level and and that's when they all said, well, we we can't have electric cars, so we've just got to make fossil combustion cars better mm. and better and better and better. And then there was this breakthrough. Um, at the same time, you also have road fuel duty. So you know, when you fill up, you pay some fuel duty. Um, that's that's the other driver there. There are revenues. There.
2: Yeah, I think Nick. I think there is an opportunity here, and. Um now, governments are not very good at picking techn- technology solutions, but I think we there is now uh, a real convergence around the opportunity around SAF. So we need a global target on SAF uh, to help drive that. I showed you the chart. We've got there with a lot of the key governments and a lot of airline groups. But really, we need a commitment at a KO to, And I'd say 10% by 2030, I'd say 70% by 2050. So there is an event this year. I know the, <laughs> the KO assemblies, they happen every three years. Believe me, there's a lot that goes on between AKO assemblies. Yeah, there's, there's probably two to three thousand people uh, supporting the cake working groups. And I'd recommend anybody, you know, if you're passionate about this, get involved in that process. You know, so the world's brains are focusing on this. But next year, you've got the ACAO. It's a general assembly on SAF, and they only hold these every five years. So engage with that, because what we're going to be trying to do as an industry is get a 10 percent commitment globally by 2030 and something around 60 to 70 cent uh, by 2050. And we think that will help drive the equivalent of what's happening with electric cars in the ground transport industry.
4: I just a, one quick thing on that, which is, I, I think it's a great idea. I think we should definitely push for it. I think the thing we need to be careful about is technology forcing and creating safety risks. So. Let's let's do it in the way that, you know, we get we don't end up in a place where we've got a plane that's not ready for market and we create safety issues. But but absolutely, we can do it. We've done it um, in the past in terms of, um, you know, I think industry, I would take this net zero debate. So industry led governments to make the commitment. So industry moved first, we made the commitment, industry uh, governments followed. We can we can absolutely do that going forwards, but we will need a clear message from aerospace that we're not getting ourselves into a sticky wicket around safety.
5: Okay, and there's there's two questions here. We'll take those
11: two, and then there's one at the back. Yeah, hello there. My name's Leon Hibbs. Just a, a kind of a slightly different question. Has anyone actually looked at the impact of a changing customer sentiment? Because my understanding is a lot of your industry is sort of quite heavily dependent on a sort of small proportion of quite frequent flyers. Now, even if they don't give up flying, let's say they cut back by half or something like that, what's the risk of that happening? And I'm looking at it from um, Sort of an air pollution perspective and diesel vehicles, where if you were in the diesel industry, maybe 2012, 2013, your future looked quite set fair. And then within a space of five years, you know, today, you're very, very, find it very difficult to find a diesel engine vehicle. So customer sentiment can turn quite quickly. And I just wondered if the industry had actually done any work at that, and looking at how quickly customer sentiment might change in relation to CO two. No, it's
2: a really, really important uh, point, and we have seen quite a shift in customer sentiment. They're very concerned, very concerned about you know, that uh, flying does produce a high level of carbon emissions. So they're talking to us about what, what are we doing, you know? And we run a lot of focus groups. Uh, with our, what, what is it? What is it that you think is? So and it's not surprising, there is a little bit of concern around offsets and it's issue because people don't really understand. Uh, there's a kind of perception around offsets. So our job, we say our job is just to educate around, you know, because bad offsets, but there's good offsets. And the one thing that they all support is sustainable aviation fuels. So we talked about all the solutions. The one thing that they all like is, is they get that. They understand it. We talk about how it works. So uh, uh, and they're saying just just Get on and deliver it. You know, that's what they want to see. They want to see us as a company and an industry. To, and they don't, you know, can't understand why it's taking so long. And for all the reasons we've we've talked about here, you know, it does take to get that 10% by 2030. Is 250 billion dollars. So it takes a lot of capital investment. You know, so gentlemen here, we need to we need to work with governments to make it attractive to make those investments. Yeah. You know? Well, just, just one data, but uh, the, our planes are absolutely. People want to fly. That's why. Yeah, to. and I think I think yeah. so. We haven't seen any reduction in demand. We've seen an increase in concern, but you know. So what people but are saying, look, and we out. say it's carbon's the enemy, not flying. So I don't think people people generally want to fly, but they see they, they put the pressure on us, and it's quite right that we should be actively reducing those yeah, emissions. Yeah.
11: <laughs> Right. It's right. A very interesting thing where the scientists would make an issue about the emissions from it, and has, from a policy perspective, largely like ignored by government. Everything's fine, nothing to see here, sort of thing. It took one thing, and it wasn't then a gradual decline, it actually just twisted almost under their own weight. So it's, it's it's just an observation. I
2: yeah, I think the diesel stuff, thing like, was. I mean, the, obviously the whole Volkswagen case there was. You know, and that I was know. that was very. <laughs> so yeah did, well, that you was a different
11: yeah temperature thing, but it was just it was, it was less about that specifically, it was about the way things can suddenly turn very
2: quickly and, rather than kind of and I, very just to, say, I think the difference there that there was alternatives yeah. for people so people people were not going to stop driving cars they'll just drive different cars so what we're saying is we don't think people are going to stop flying they're just going to put quite rightly more pressure on us as an industry to do something about so it yeah It depends by business. Yeah. It depends by business. It varies.
5: Yeah. Next question here.
10: Uh, hi. <clears throat> Robin Saristo, Chair of the Young Persons Committee here at the Society. So picking up on Finlay's point around the, the carbon budget and the sort of 10 to 15 year timeline until that's blown for 1.5c and some uh, earlier comment around previous SAF targets that were then not met, the um, question goes to both sides. It's around the pathways to, to net zero. I'm sort of wondering, supposing we aren't on track for things, can you give me any confidence that the industry and the society will actually work harder to meet it, or will they just go, ah, actually this is too hard, it's too late already, what's the point?
1: So I I think the important thing to understand, so the, the thing with the diesel was the science was there, people were willfully ignoring it and lobbying against it, and that would have caused massive financial hurt when Um, when suddenly it had to change. But that was because people were deliberately putting their heads in the sand. And that's what we're doing now. 10% SAF by 2030 is putting your head in the sand. Look up ICCT, EU feedstocks for SAF. You'll see that 5% by 2030 is optimistic. If you had a look at Jonathan's slide, most of the investment is in HEFA. HEFA is oil, waste oil and fat. It can only be scaled to about 2% of UK jet fuel use. If we go above that, we just divert from the road transport sector. There is no other commercialized pathway with a facility that's operating anywhere in the world. Why does it have to be built? Why does it have to come from the UK? you guys as well about
8: Exactly. So I don't exactly. understand
2: why you make such a point. It's,
8: about the exactly.
2: Businesses in the UK, and that's that's our position. It doesn't end it, yeah, It'd be great, it'd be if, great if we've got comparative advantage. Chance. It'll happen here, yeah. but just uh, just to just to, uh, uh, to your point, Finley, <laughs> the U.S. So, yeah, government yeah. wouldn't have committed to fifteen percent by twenty thirty if they didn't think it was achievable. So look at the latest reports. Look at the Grand Challenge. You're right. A lot of that is conversion of biodiesel plants into SAF plants, but that's because the ground transport industry is going electric. You don't need that biodiesel in because ground transport has does, alternatives. Does the
1: U.S. Yes. Grand Challenge include biofuel from crops?
2: It, it, everything they're doing does, is does sustainable. It include, does it include so basically biofuels from it's, crops? it's waste biomass. It's waste biomass. So the question, are the, uh, the fuels they're talking about sustainable? Absolutely, because you don't get any credit if you don't. One, there's two things. Nobody's going to make unsustainable SAF because, one, you're not going to get an investment. Two, you don't get any credit versus pri- carbon pricing instruments. So why would you do it?
5: So, I, so there's a massive check and balance. Come back. The come the, the back to the question. So this is about confidence. Yeah,
10: uh, yeah. in terms of um, if if we aren't on track, yeah. will we work so harder so for it, or so will it be abandoned or targets so changed?
1: There, very brief summary of that is the evidence shows that that what we're going to have to do is take it from we're take already taking lots of feedstock from China. So. You've got a waste oil collection in Beijing. It's being shipped across the world to the UK. It would obviously make more sense to use it in Beijing Airport. So that's why that's absurd. Um, and and we're limited on feedstock globally. Um, and and it doesn't make sense to ship it from other parts of the world from an environmental point of view. So it's a it's a bad investment if you're setting up to do that.
4: So, so, I think just um, <laughs> I'm not going to prolong that conversation. I, I disagree with what Finley said. I think we've got loads of feedstock here in the UK. We just need to enable it and switch it away from biodiesel. Basically, um, the um, the the issue around your your question around pathway, um, certainly our view is is and the UK government's is there's a there's a transition pathway to net zero that we've set out. The government set out. We fully recognise that if we haven't delivered that through technology, operational improvements or SAF, that we're going to have to address the gap by using carbon removal. Um, So the question then becomes, what are we doing to scale carbon removal? Which is why increasingly aviation is getting more and more active in the conversation about what is the UK doing about carbon removal? What's happening globally? The Corsair scheme driving, because effectively, if we don't accept that and, you know, we could choose as a society to say carbon removal is not part of the solution, then we're absolutely in the demand management stopping flying. Now, that then challenges the other side of the society debate, which says, actually, uh, it's really important for me to go and see my family, you know, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So um, for, for us, absolutely, the pathway needs to be met. We're, we're not shirking that as industry. I don't think this government is shirking it in its strategy. It's committed to it. Um the, the interesting thing, I think, is going to be when they do that five year review here in the UK and say, where are you against plan? Then, you know, I'm fully expecting a challenge back to say, you're not where you need to be. You need to take, you need to effectively take a, a bigger chunk of carbon removal uh, investment than you've done uh, going forward. So we will, as industry, be monitoring that incredibly closely. Jonathan, as IAG, is 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 under his own plan that they've committed to, but also the Corsier scheme, EU ETS, UK ETS, etc., which is all ratcheting down. So I personally think there are safeguards in the system that will default to the fact we, we have got to act, and if we need to pay, we need to pay. The, the challenge becomes how do we kind of do that in the smartest possible way that reduces the biggest negative impact on the benefits aviation's offering. Okay.
5: So- Question at the back first, and then one just in front. I think we'll take both, both at the same time.
10: Hi, Danny from IBA. Um, just, just something I feel has been slightly overlooked in that aviation is still very much recovering from the pandemic and trying to reach uh, levels of 2019, perhaps even go beyond levels of 2019 in terms of demand and obviously emissions. Um, we've also heard a lot about things that are maybe 10 years away, a 2030 SAF mandate you're saying you need, saying that you're saying it's something that's pretty much out of your control. Um, I'd just like to hear some things about things that are in your control, uh, only in your control. So, operational efficiency improvements that you're doing right now, uh, sure. tomorrow. Sure. Um, because 2030 SAF mandate is eight years away, and, and by that sure. time, sure. you could and be, you know, and it's twice so as profitable we'll, as you are now.
5: We'll take two, so we'll take oh. the second one. This is the last well, round of questions before your closing remarks.
6: First, I wanted to know that I do not personally believe in offsets right. because I believe it should be in sector, and I, I, I agree. So, I don't think it's a, it's a way it's true, we shouldn't be convincing people that offsets are the way to go. Um, Secondly, SAF is great, but also has its limits in terms of being net zero. You still will make contrails with, they might be less, but you'll make contrails with SAF because there's aromatics in the fuel. Now, so these are all solutions, but they're not the solution. They're also not fast enough. And the question I want to get to is in such a debate I, as someone who has just started in aviation, and I feel my peers here as well, are not convinced by the uh, developments of the sector. You say, we need to be, we don't, make sure we don't go too fast because we might be pushing away other countries. But I feel there's a trade-off because you might be pushing away people that could help you solve the solution. People like Finley, for example. How do you see that trade-off? Do you see that there might be like a, 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 a negative to the fact not just in climate effect, but also in getting people on board effect that you are having when you want to find a solution together with ICAO and with 190 countries?
2: Uh, So I've come to the first one. It's a great question on the pandemic. So it was our real concern that with the pandemic, we're going to get repeat what happened in the global financial crisis, that everyone says we can't worry about uh, sustainability because we've got a bigger issue. In fact, it's the reverse um, you know, it, it, and I don't know whether it was uh, uh, people had time because we weren't operating. A lot of people had time to think about well what are the, what are, let's use this to think about what we should be doing. and, and I, myself the sustainability team were the only team that worked through the pandemic in our head office right through because our workload went exponentially. you know, and uh, you know it has massively damaged our business. So just to give you the finances, the aviation industry lost 90% of all the profits it's made since flying started in the early 20th century. Yeah, so that's how, in two years, we've lost basically all the money we've ever made as an industry. The balance sheet of IAG, we've added 8 billion euros to our balance sheet. You know, so we're in, a, you know, we're in a challenging situation. That said, our commitment to sustainability has increased. We are committed to net zero emissions, first airline in the world to do that. We committed to 10% SAF by 2030. This is a huge investment for us. And I know 2030, we're starting today. We're not waiting to 2030. We can't wait to 2029 and find For us, 10% is a million tons of SAF. Today, that will cost you 3 billion euros. So the price of a ton of SAF is three and a half times the price of fossil. It's about three and a half thousand euros a ton. That's, no, that's a very significant, as I mentioned, we've already, so we've been out there trying to secure as much SAF as possible. We have locked in contracts for 250,000 tons of SAF by 2030. That's $865 million of commitment. I've had to go to our board and say to them, you know, we've been through the worst financial crisis. Our balance sheet is wrecked. We haven't made money for three years. But I need $865 million to secure, to start secure our sustainable future. And they said, we'll do it. So just to give you, I can't stress how importantly we see this. And it's not, just, it's not just IAG, it's all the majors. Our challenge is to get the rest of the industry there as well, you know, to focus and get that. that, that. And 10% is, it's 100 times more than the global supply today. It's a massive move. And the thing with the 10%, it is, it is the most difficult because it's the highest risk plants. The second 90% will be a walk in the park once you've proved the first ten percent, yeah. So that's why we focus on that milestone. Okay. Um, John, Jonathan, I agree with you, Jonathan. I'm going to have to cut, cut you sorry, off. Sorry, I'm going to have to cut
5: you off. I'll give uh, Finley and Matt just an opportunity to respond to the questions, and then we will have to go to closing remarks. So, yeah, if you want to respond You're to those step. two questions,
3: um, I'll, I'll be brief quickly. Um, so, so on the on the industry and the pandemic and SAF points, um, don't forget, AirBP and Shell are the two largest providers of fuel in the UK. So don't just focus on the airlines because the aviation sector is BP and Shell and they made 15 billion profits last quarter. They've they've got some money. Um, On on your first point, so just a couple of anecdotes. Um, BP and Shell, again, are struggling to recruit graduates because people just don't want to work for them. And I've heard from people in the advertising industry that there are younger people, i.e. recently graduated, who again refuse to work on fossil fuel type company campaigns, possibly including airlines but certainly including oil and SUVs actually. Um, so this is bubbling, I've never seen a big meta study on, on this and I'd love to see one if anyone knows one, but but the feeling is this is bubbling up from younger people. Okay.
1: Um, Quick one. Yeah, um, very quickly, uh, so I quit my job a couple of years ago because I felt I wanted to challenge some of this stuff and I was challenging it internally. Um, and I got down to the point where we agreed, the Corsair scheme, Chief Technology Officer, CEO of Rolls-Royce, Corsair scheme not adequate, biofuels can't be scaled, solution is e-fuels from nuclear reactors. Who's funding the nuclear reactors? How are they being built? Um, the UK government has committed to building a, a few. Um, they need, they're needed for decarbonizing the grid. The aviation industry is m- not funding a single nuclear reactor yet that was the main argument of the, the very top level of my company. So I felt like I didn't want to be part of an industry that was actively misleading, misdirecting, and actually fundamentally just not acknowledging the problem, the carbon budgeting and allocation problem. I'd love to go back to the aviation sector. I, this, today I've been discussing hydrogen aircraft in detail, I can go discuss with the guy later, the intricate challenges of where to position the tanks and the centre of gravity movements and stuff. But I need to be part of a sector that has acknowledged the problem, has a carbon budget, and I'm convinced that, as I said before, we're not going to destroy everything.
5: Okay, thanks. So, right, we've got a few minutes left, and um, we're going to do a poll at the end of it. Um, But we've just got a few minutes to do final closing remarks from from each of you. And I'm going to be very strict on time. I've got my stopwatch out. And um, I'm only able to give you each 30 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) So you have to be really... This is like an accelerated elevator pitch. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so just just 30 seconds. Um, And we'll go in the... um, I think we'll go in reverse order, if that's okay. So um, Andy first then Matt, then uh, Jonathan,
4: and then Finley. Thanks. Right. 30 seconds. Um, The darkest hour is always before the dawn. It feels to me that we're in the darkest hour right now on this whole climate change and aviation thing. My view is we've got the solutions, we've got the capability, we have the passion. I've heard it in this debate today to solve this problem. Let's stop fighting between each other. Let's collaborate and let's tackle this problem because we absolutely can. And we should for the benefit of society. Thank you.
0: Excellent.
3: And Matt. So we've we've outlined the scale of the challenge and, and it's huge. And we're all pretty much agreed that the political will just isn't there right now. But the clock is ticking. So. I haven't heard anything that suggests that we're going to hit net zero by, uh, by 2050. Yep, great,
5: okay. Jonathan.
2: Yeah, hopefully we um, portray to you that we are we are fully. But if you're not convinced, I offer all of you come to IAG for a day. You'll see how, how committed we are as a company, as an industry. You know, and as Andy says, we're only going to achieve this uh, by working together Fully, you know, Finley has done a, played a fantastic role in challenging. We need challenge, uh, but we need talent. I am very envious of you guys because I wish I was starting my career in this industry because there are so many exciting opportunities. So work with us in the industry, <laughs> and we can solve this together. And Finley, we
5: need your back.
1: Come on, help us.
5: <laughs> Finley, that's your introduction.
1: So yeah, um, I, I suppose the problem is I've heard a lot of agreement from the other side when we when we put forward our case. Um, so then it's quite difficult. I presented in my case, which is there's a carbon budget, we're going to blow it in 10 years, and there's been no comeback to that. Um, so as i presented, I think we need to work from the grassroots, it's not going to happen from the top down, we need to work from the grassroots up to change this industry. So please, I've got a notepad here, come and join Safe Landing, put your name down, put your email, let's grow this movement and let's, let's do something about this.
5: Okay, great, well done. Okay, so we took um, we took a show of hands. You have got uh, voting slips on your table, I believe. Um, it, it would take us a, a long time, so please do indicate where you would go on that voting slip and we will collect them up afterwards.
2: Um,
5: it would take a long time for us to do that and do the count, so we don't have that time. What we're going to do is take a show of hands. Uh, we have an approximate. Um, sort of split from earlier on, from before the debate, and it will be interesting to see how things have changed now. So those of you who are for um, the motion, which is that aviation will not meet yeah. net not. zero. It's, it's,
0: well, it, the motion is not the one on the <laughs> <laughs> So the it's motion liberal. says aviation
5: will not meet net zero by 2050. Um, if you uh, are for that motion, please raise your hand now. Okay. Okay. And if you are against that motion, okay. So. I'm
6: curious.
2: Yeah. What if, did we convince you, Bentley? <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. Work, yeah, in, yeah, progress, yeah, work yeah, in progress. Work
6: in progress. For example, if I'm you. sure. Like maybe I'm hitting lead us to net
4: zero emissions because um, <laughs> <laughs> we have no aviation industry
6: left. I'm sorry, that's that's
4: one of my takeaways from the... Yeah, project. there's a risk of that. That's a
0: risk. But it's, it's a, I think
3: it's
5: a good one because it puts our minds on edge. Hopefully it spurs yeah. us into action, I would argue. Yeah. But. <laughs> mm. So... Okay, so we... I, th- I think actually it was a res- res- relatively similar proportion. I mean, th- some people have left the room. And- at a
0: quick count,
5: yeah. Let's
0: move up here so I can see it. At a quick count, I think that it, at the beginning of the, of the uh, debate there were 24 for the motion and seven against, out of about 34 people in the room. And now there are about 19 or 20 people in the room, and there are only five against and 14 for. So, the proportion against the motion has increased. increased yeah. It's like oh, Small victories, but we'll take it. We'll take it. It's a start. So, <laughs> okay. Do you want to close? Well, I was remiss, remiss at the beginning of not pointing out that this session is being recorded in audio. And the speakers and people here are all given their permission for that. But if anyone objects to themselves being on audio and this being put on the web, let us know now or very soon afterwards so that we can remedy that position. But otherwise, I just wanted to thank everybody for... Particularly the speakers for their commitment and the discussion, no, which has you. been very, very useful and open. I think uh, for to Mark for helping significantly with the moderation, uh, to the society for allowing us to use the room, to Robin for handling the microphone so ably around the table, and I wish everybody um, a very sustainable future and <laughs> to go oh, away. Yeah. And, uh,
5: Thanks to you, Ray, for organising the event. This, this, this oh, part.